welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. And uh, this last trip where I brought my father out here to be with us over the holidays, um, I was driving his car with Michigan tags on it over the bridges, you know, and I'd forgotten to put my fast track in it, and I was going through the fast track lane. And so I thought, oh boy, they're going to send him a notice back there in Michigan about a violation. And so my brother's been paying my father's bills. So when I spoke to my brother, I said, now watch for a fast track uh, violation. He's, I said, and if you'll send it to me, we'll make sure it's taken care of. And all of a sudden, he lets out a big hee-haw. You took Dad's car out and got a violation again. You know, he's always been trying to get on top as far as with his competition with his brother is concerned. I finally, I tell you, I admit my brother is on top, I'll tell you. He is a chief financial officer of a great big company in Michigan, and he makes all kinds of money, and he has a house beside the lake. As far as I'm concerned, he's on top. <laughs> he's finally won. But it reminds me of when we were youngsters, and uh, we were so competitive. And I was just a little bit physically larger than him because for, there's four years difference between us. And, you know, when mom and dad were out of the house, those two dogs were fighting. And we were literally in a wrestling match, in a scrap with each other. And I just love, he would, he would say just the things that made me so mad that I would want to put the hurt on him. <laughs> and so I'd usually get his arms behind his back and really control him. Very competitive. We always played these games, you know. I remember this game, Risk. Wow, what a competitive game. And when he had Kamchatka, I said, I'm rolling on Kamchatka. I'm going to take it. Competitive. Well, we want to talk about a couple of competitive brothers in the Bible this morning. And the Lord is actually inviting us to wrestle with him about a problem that he knows that we have. And it's on the same order that Jesus asked his disciples in Gethsemane to watch and to pray with him. And what the Lord has invited us to wrestle with him regarding is about is our spiritual apathy, our spiritual apathy. Now, I don't know how you were born, uh, but I was born a sinner. I was born a very selfish person in nature. Maybe you were born neutral, or maybe you were born all good. You know, I have seen certain individuals that I can't see anything wrong with them. They just seem to be good, thoroughly good, and I can't understand that because I was born bad, a bad sinner. We know of one person in the Bible that was born selfish, 
And that is a rather disturbing fact because the Bible tells us that not one of us will get into heaven except we are one of this man's children. Who am I talking about? According to Genesis chapter 25 and verse 22, he was in the womb of his mother, Rebekah, and Jacob was already wrestling with Esau in, in Rebekah's stomach. And if you read the verses there, I'll tell you, those boys must have given their mother a tummy ache the way they were going at it. And finally, when it came time for her to pop them out, uh, Esau was coming out first, and Jacob grabs his brother's heel, and he says, oh no, you're not going to be first, I'm going to be first. You know, you remember that description? You can read about it there. In Genesis chapter 25, verses 20 through and 22, and then in verse 26, it says Jacob grabbed Esau's heel. He wanted to be first. And so, from that very moment, uh, Jacob was born selfish. He was born selfish right out of the womb. And when in, uh, we, we read later on that uh, in Isaiah chapter Genesis chapter 48, verses 1 and 8. Wait, I want to be first. Okay, Isaiah reports this in chapter 48, verse 1. O house of Jacob, thou wast called a transgressor from the womb. So Isaiah calls him a sinner from the time that he was born. And Hosea says, the Lord will punish Jacob. He took his brother by the heel in the womb. Hosea 12, verses 2 and 3. Well, that's a pretty bad beginning, isn't it? born selfish. But before we say, well, too bad for Jacob, you're worse than the rest of us, let's remember Romans chapter 3, verse 2, there is none righteous, no, not one, it says. So even my wonderfully unselfish friends, people that I look at and I can't say one bad thing about them, they look good through and through, even my unselfish friends weren't born unselfish. They had to learn to be unselfish, or to learn that. And the good news is that we can learn to be unselfish through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Recognizing that Jacob was born selfish and a sinner, in fact, does not support the traditional doctrine of original sin, which says that the guilt of sin is transmitted genetically by the genes. It just simply means that Jacob, like all of us, was born self-centered, And if you don't know about the principle of the cross, inevitably you're going to do the only thing that you know to do, and that is to be selfish. But we can learn the way of the cross. We can learn the way of the cross, and that's the wonderful good news. We can learn to be unselfish through the cross. And this is intended for the people who are not perfect, who have sins to confess, who struggle with temptations, who know what it is to kneel before the Lord in shame, in humble, tearful repentance day after day. So if you fit into this category, the story of Jacob is a very encouraging one for you because here was a man, Jacob, who told seven despicable lies in his efforts to climb over somebody else in order to get himself to the top. His name was Jacob. 
You know, he deceived his poor old blind father and assumed a deceptive identity in order to secure a fabulous inheritance that by law should have gone to his brother Esau and which his sincere old father had fully intended to go to Esau. But now Jacob has succeeded in place of Esau, but the joy and the exhilaration that Jacob should have had experienced, having reached the top, all dissipated by an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame. And he was forced to flee into exile, wasn't he? And Jacob was so loaded down with self-loathing and self-condemnation that he lay down to sleep without being able to say a goodnight prayer. He was exhausted by his guilt, and he finds relief only by sleep so deep that a stone pillow gives him comfort. Well, millions of Christians enjoy studying about angels And you can go into almost any Christian bookstore and you'll find book titles on that intriguing subject of angels. But one truth is very clear in Scripture that Jesus said that each human being who believes in him has and his heart has responded to Jesus' love is given a special guardian angel. You have been given a special guardian angel. Matthew 18, verse 10. Matthew 18, verse 10 reads, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. So it it seems reasonable, doesn't it, to understand this promise as meaning that God assigns an angel to each of us to be a kind of personal bodyguard, but not only physical bodyguard, but an angel who wants to help us spiritually as well. And sometimes the physical security is less important than the spiritual security. And if we make a mistake, so the question is, does that mean that the guardian angel forsake us when we make a mistake? You know, sometimes in our zeal, to frighten our children into not going into worldly places. Uh, We have told them, well, if you go into that place, you know, if you go into that saloon, your garden angel is going to not go in there with you. But fear will never produce a genuine devotion to Christ. I want you to remember the story of Jacob. He sinned grievously, didn't he? He repeatedly lied to his poor old blind father Isaac. And although we don't read that he was put under oath, his lies seem quite equivalent to perjury, lying under oath. And he takes the name of God in vain in the course of his lying. And feeling guilty and polluted, he leaves his home on his way to Mesopotamia. He's tired at night. He lies down on the ground to sleep. Away, uh, sleep away his exhaustion, his guilty sorrow, probably not daring to pray. He's thinking in his mind, I'm nothing going nowhere here. I'm dead in the water, he's probably thinking to himself. And you know how when we have sinned, we don't feel like praying, do we? Well, 
Did Jacob's guardian angel forsake him? No. No, he didn't. And so young people need to learn this story. Because Jacob had a dream, didn't he, that night? And he saw a ladder that was let down from heaven right where he was. And he would, we need to tell youth this story about Jacob so that they will not be discouraged. Uh, we don't tell them this story not to, to uh, presume upon the grace of God, but we tell them this story of Jacob. Not only did Jacob have one guardian angel, he had a whole bevy of them ascending and descending on this ladder. He had a whole bunch of them. And that should help us and help young people uh, to appreciate God's mercy for them in the time of need, when, especially when they have sinned. Amen? That's the special time when God sends his angels to spiritually help them, to bring them to repentance. So, friends, angels are our friends. They're not like some KGB, uh, you know, uh, agent that looking out for a case against us so that they can just go back and report some good juicy gossip and have it written down in the books of heaven against us. Angels are for us. They're our spiritual guardians. Well, then in this dream, the Lord God gives Jacob a message. There is a ladder reaching from where he is to the top of heaven. And there above that ladder stands God himself. And I want you to notice that Jacob doesn't climb that ladder. Who is going up and down that ladder? It's the angels who are going up and down. And what does God say to poor Jacob, who feels like nothing going nowhere? Is God saying, you old rascal, you, you old liar, you're a thief. How do you think I could ever bless you? Is that what God is saying to him? No. A thousand times no. God repeats to Jacob seven fantastic promises that he made to grandfather Abraham previously. He renews those promises to this outstanding sinner, Jacob, and he doesn't ask Jacob to promise him one blessed thing. You can read it. In Genesis chapter 28, verses 11 to 22. Now, does that mean that God thinks that lying is okay? That God thinks that stealing is okay? Also a thousand times no. But the gratitude that Jacob experiences at knowing that he is forgiven and cleansed and redeemed and accepted in Christ and chosen by God to salvation that changes his heart and saves his soul from ruin and from despair. And you, who are you? By grace, dear friend, you are a child of Jacob. That's who I am. So identify with Jacob, please. Identify with him. During my lifetime, I've met only one person who said that she thought that she did not have enough trials and tribulations. Her husband was wealthy. She had a new Cadillac every two years, and she gave of her time and her strength and her money to help the Lord's work wherever she saw a need. But most people that I know 
They have more than enough trials and troubles, most people. And young people, I think, especially wrestle with the constant temptation to doubt and to fear for the future. They're afraid that they are not accepted by God. They're conscious of their sinfulness. They're hesitant to believe that God can really bless them. And the Bible says that everyone who will be saved at last is a child of Jacob. Frequently, the Lord addresses His people as His Isaiah 2, 5, O house of Jacob, O house of Jacob. And I don't know that there are any of us who are better than Jacob. You know what his name meant? Supplanter. Supplanter. Someone who is so self-centered that he wanted to get ahead, even at his birth. And if you think that you're better than that from your birth, well, you probably don't even know your own heart. The life story of Jacob is going to be encouraging for you to study. He was a man who felt God-forsaken. That night when he tried to sleep with a stone for his pillow, he knew he had sinned. He was keenly conscious of his unworthiness, and we are too. And yet the Lord tried to assure him of a ladder from heaven to earth, right where he was with angels of God ascending and descending on it to help him. You are a child of Jacob. Who is your father? His name is Jacob. Yes. The grandson of Abraham. His life, his experience is yours. Please accept some encouragement from the story of your father Jacob. And in a special way, Jacob is the father of those who are preparing to meet Jesus at his second coming. I say that Jacob, in a special way, is the father of us who are preparing for the second coming of Christ. People like us who were born sinners, people who have sinned, who have often failed, who have and are wrestling with unbelief, who have struggled to understand why we have so many troubles. We have been tempted to give up in doubt and despair, and yet have chosen to hang on by faith until we experience the victory that changes our name from Jacob to Israel. The prince who has prevailed with God, who has won in a wrestling match with God, with Christ. You see, Jacob's lifelong problem was learning to believe. Learning to believe the simple promise that God made to him, that God chose him, that God elected him, that God gave him the birthright. He was to receive the birthright, promised to bless him as he promised to bless Abraham. And all of Jacob's heartaches were the direct result of his doubting the promises of God when he looked at his deep sinfulness. And he had a hard time believing that God could actually bless him. To such, he was such a sinner he, as he knew himself to be. How could God bless him in this way? And seven times now, our father is Jacob. Now, seven times in the book of Revelation, God 
has given us a haunting phrase. It's repeated there in awe-inspiring words. He that overcometh. He that overcometh. He that overcometh. Seven times. That promise is given to us who are awaiting the second coming of Christ. And the idea is one of combat, of hand-to-hand wrestling, like Jacob's struggle with the angel there in Genesis 32. It's like swimming upstream against a very strong current. It's like climbing a mountain that leaves you breathless. It's like defeating a tenacious foe. Does that idea of overcoming, does that frighten you? Does it frighten you? You don't have to have, you say, well, I don't have that stick to I don't have that perseverance. I don't have that basic strength to win in a wrestling match. We're li- I'm like a weary refugee on foot who can't summon the energy to take another step, who drops down. I'm ready to drop down and die. I, the temptation for me is to give up the struggle to overcome. It causes some of us to drop off the race, the Christian race. Give in to their long-established habits of alcoholism. Give in to drug use. Give in to pornography or whatever it is. Give in to apathy. Give in to apathy, which is the last of the vices that Jesus invites us to overcome in those famous seven struggles of Revelation. Because Jesus says, you are lukewarm, and I counsel thee, be zealous, therefore, and repent. To him that overcometh, he says, the last wrestling match of God's people who are waiting for Jesus to come is a wrestling match with God over our apathy, our spiritual torpor, Lukewarmness is apathy, spiritual weariness, loss of hope, boredom with the spiritual blessings that God has given to us, boredom with the cross. It's the fundamental characteristic of Christ's true church in the last segment of time. And the will just seems to be paralyzed. It's it's almost irresistible drowsiness that induces sleep at the very Gethsemane time when the Master is saying to us, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. Have you ever fought to stay awake? When every cell of your body screams, go to sleep? It was driving out in the middle of the desert on the straightest freeway you could drive on. No hills, bumps, curves at all. And I'm going like this. And the hum of the wheels is just... And I'm fooling myself saying, I'm just going to close my eyes just for a second. And then I'm going to wake them up. I'm going to open them up. Yeah, I suppose that's never happened to you. I can do this. And I go a few more minutes and I'm going to just close my eyes just for a second. Oh, it feels so good. And then I'm going to open them up disaster. Every second you have to keep your eyes on the road when you're driving. Amen? 
And the Lord is inviting us now in our hour of Gethsemane, like he did to the disciples, to watch and to pray, lest ye enter into temptation. We are in the hour of wrestling with God over our spiritual apathy. We've come to that time in the world history right now. Spiritual sleep was Christian's problem in the Pilgrim's Progress when he was trying to traverse the enchanted land, and he saw pilgrims snoring away by the side of the path that leads to eternal life. They were overcome by a spiritual torpor like nerve gas, and it took every ounce of spiritual energy to stay awake until he got out of the devil's enchantment. But he did get out, and you and I can overcome. I remember, it reminds me of climbing Mount Aconcagua, solo, 23,000 feet. You know what happens to brain cells after 16,000 feet? They start to diminish in judgment. You constantly have to be going through a checklist in your mind that you're doing things correctly or you're going to get into trouble. And if you're going to go solo up to 23,000 feet, I found that the last several thousand feet were agony, no air. Just like having pneumonia, someone sitting on your chair, you couldn't get enough of air. I went a couple of steps, and I sat down on a big rock, and I took a nap for 15 minutes. Woke up, got up, took another few steps, and I sat down on the next big rock and took a nap for 15 minutes. And that's the way it was until some acclimatized local shouted down from the top, Get up and start marching up to the top. You're almost here. If it wasn't for that fellow, I don't think I would have overcome. Spiritual torpor is our problem as Laodiceans in this last days. We're falling off like flies, hit with nerve gas, sitting on the pathway on the side of the road. A wise writer, Ellen White, has said this in Ministry of Healing, page 500, Those who decline the struggle lose the strength and the joy of victory. Here is the how of overcoming. Look again at those last seven promises to the overcome, to the overcomer. To him that overcometh, even as I overcame, says Jesus. So, how does one overcome? Even as Jesus overcame. Amen? then immerse yourself in the story of Jesus overcoming. Immerse yourself in his battle. Immerse yourself in his victory. Ponder his struggle there in the wilderness of temptation. Look at his Gethsemane where he was sweating great drops of blood, his ordeal, and see the unspeakable battle with self as he hung upon the cross in Psalm 22. And let your experience be Let his experience be your icon to look at rather than the endless photos of the latest starlets of Hollywood. Yes, sure the battle is intense, but the means of victory, Jesus invites us to look to him. He's at the summit. He's made it. Look to him. You can overcome the torpor of unbelief. And in that climatic wrestling match out there by the river Jabbok, Jacob broke at last through the clouds of unbelief and doubt, and he knew by faith that God receiveth sinners. 
He learned at last that salvation is not dependent on his works, but on the grace of God and his promises. And read the seven great steps in Jacob's experience in Genesis 25 to 42. And learn from your father Jacob how to believe, how to overcome. Now Daniel tells us, and I apologize for the text that was got into the bulletin incorrectly. Uh, it's Daniel 12, verse 1. It was a scripture reading this morning, and uh, I didn't edit it properly, but look at Daniel 12 and verse 1 with me for a moment. This is the time in which we're living, Daniel 12 and verse 1. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation and even to that same time. Well, will it be worse than the Iraq War? Will it be worse than the war in Afghanistan? Psalm 91, while trying to comfort us, tells us there will be a terror by night and the pestilence that walketh in darkness and the destruction that wasteth at noonday and a thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand. And Jesus adds to the dread of that time in Matthew 24, 9, where he says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Is it any wonder that some people who say they believe in this Christ's second coming add rather ruefully, and I hope that Jesus doesn't come while I'm alive, if it has to be that bad? Could there be something, could there be something about the time of trouble that we haven't understood yet? Could there? And the news may be better than we have thought I want you to consider the story of Delia Owens. It was bad enough for Daniel, the brave prophet, to be thrown into the den of lions. That was his time of trouble. It was an ordeal as frightening to him as our facing the time of trouble is for us. But can you imagine a woman facing the terror of spending a lonely African night out in the open with the wild lions? Can you imagine that? Well, if you had to ask Delia Owens when she was a girl how she would like to spend the night in Africa on the ground in a sleeping bag with wild lions killing all around, milling all around her, she would probably have shrieked in horror at the prospect of having to do that. But here she was under the stars in the distant Kalahari Desert with a nine-foot lioness licking the toe jam off of her toes in her sleeping bag, and another one breathing down her neck with his hot breath. And there's Delia with a hundred trackless miles between her and help. And on another occasion, she is crouching alone in a flimsy tent with aggressive lions who are patting all around her, uprooting the stakes of the tent and pawing at the canvas while she frantically empties her trunk so she can climb into it and take refuge. And most of us would dread such a nightmarish experience as much as we dread going through the time of trouble. But what led Delia 
to endure that nightmare. What led her to endure it? She loved a man, her husband, Mark Owens. And he, he was either with her as she slept on the ground in her sleeping bag with the lions at, at her toes and breathing down her neck. At least she knew that her husband was with her, whom she loved. And on the other occasion, he was fast on his way in his Jeep to get there to her. So the clue for Delia facing the lions alone was knowing that her husband was right there that her husband was right there, and that made all of the difference in the world. Well, is there such a thing, dear friends, as being married to Jesus Christ so that he is closer to us during the time of trouble than Mark was to Delia? Is there such a thing? And if so, all of our fears then about the time of trouble could be automatically defused. Amen? This time of trouble that we have so dreaded so much turns out to be the honeymoon. The honeymoon when Christ and His bride get to know each other more intimately than they ever have before. Don't forget that Daniel adds some tremendous good news about this time of trouble in Daniel 12, verse 1. He says, at that time shall who stand up? Michael shall stand up, that great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Now, Michael, that's another name for Christ, correct? It means who is like God. So the angel who was talking with Daniel probably used the name to emphasize the divine human character of the Mighty One who steps forward in the final crisis for the defense of His people. And so to stand up, Michael, stand up, that is a way of saying how a king takes over his throne, how he assumes complete control. And so the idea is that Jesus doesn't sleep during our time of trouble. Jesus doesn't sleep during our time of trouble. And for him to stand up means that he will enter into a new closeness with his people. Something that's never before been realized. He will become a bridegroom and they will become his bride. And Revelation pictures the sublime excitement of this new relationship. In Revelation 19.7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. What a beautiful picture of a wedding, of conjugal bliss. There's an intimacy in marriage that no other relationship can approach. And a bride not only loves her bridegroom, she can't help but respect can't help but trust him implicitly. She's ready to go with him anywhere, even to the perils of the Kalihari Desert. And she will gladly share in all of his future experiences, and she is jealous to share in his sorrows and in his pains. 
Amen? No way is the Lord going to allow this coming of the time of trouble to take place until His people collectively marry Christ in that capacity as a bride. And this means for you and for me to grow up, to grow up into the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. Like a bride is grown up, at the we- able to stand by the side of her bridegroom at the wedding. I don't know what kind of a wedding Mark and Delia Owens had, but I'm sure that no little flower girl at the wedding would have been ready to go into the wild Africa with Mark. But a wedding means that now the bridegroom and the bride are going to share life together. This explains how the coming time of trouble will be the honeymoon for Christ and his bride. They'll get to know each other intimately as though they share the excitement of that time. And if there's to be any pain and sorrow that is endured by God's people in the time of trouble, you can be sure that Christ will suffer it as much as they will. He's not the one who brings on the time of trouble. No, a thousand times no. Jesus does not bring on the time of trouble. Let's be clear about that. Jesus is not going to cause the time of trouble in any way. He would love to return the second time in perfectly peaceful circumstances. Folks, the time of trouble was never Jesus' idea. It's Satan's farewell party. It's Satan's idea. I'm going to give them a great big farewell party, those saints of God, just to see how they come out whether they really are true blue or not. And it will be brought on entirely by the machinations of the wicked who let their hatred of God erupt into a final frenzy of rebellion against Christ through trying to touch his bride. Christ will meet this head on as Michael, the son of God, to be sure, but also the son of man who is not ashamed to call you and me brethren. Jesus, James and John once very naively asked Jesus, could we please have the highest places in your kingdom when you come into it? And Jesus asked, well, if you are able to drink my cup, if you're able to be baptized where, with my baptism, and they said childishly, oh, we can. We can do that. But the Lord could not give them the place of honor that they asked for. And that is reversed for all of those who, in an unusual sense of taste of Christ's cup of loneliness, yes, his bride will taste his cup of loneliness. By faith, they will conquer its bitterness. And this will be their privilege during the time of trouble. When they live in the sight of a holy God without a mediator or an intercessor, and they will wrestle, they'll wrestle with the temptation to feel that they're all forsaken, that they're all alone, just as Jesus felt it on his cross. But they will have already learned how to say no to that temptation. Therefore, they will conquer that final temptation to ultimate despair And dear friends, there is royalty that is inherent in this victory of overcoming. There is royalty 
inherent in this victory. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father on his throne. Revelation 3.21. And that honor is not a mere token gesture on his part, like being in the queen's chair for a moment so that you can have your picture taken. It's an invitation to share executive authority in God's government, to be a member of his responsible committee that directs the successful conclusion of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. What a destiny for overcomers. If Jesus' promise makes any sense, can it mean it can mean nothing less? It's Satan's accusations in the great controversy with God that sinners are incapable of coming into harmony with God's law. There's an enmity against God that prevents this. The executive authority which Christ gives to his saints in the time of trouble is grace to live in flesh of temptation. Nevertheless, they would rather be laid into the grave than to disgrace their Savior by choosing to sin. They will not be conscious of their purity of love and devotion. They will not boast of their perfection. In fact, they will see themselves as unworthy sinners. Just like Charles Wesley wrote, Jesus, lover of my soul, I am all unrighteousness. That's how they'll see themselves. They'll cling to Jesus all the more in their trial of faith. Jesus' gospel triumphs in them, and thus he grants them executive authority in overcoming Satan's last fling, his last farewell party to the 144,000 at the time of trouble. And if there's anyone's heart that says, that responds, no, I don't want that close fellowship with Christ. I don't want that living through the time of trouble. I'd rather let me go to heaven by the underground subway route then that person is, in fact, rejecting Christ and in rejecting fellowship, a closer intimacy with Him. And if we have the choice between the comfortable spiritual sleep and lethargy in the tomb that we call death with the hope of the first resurrection or living through the time of trouble and actually welcoming Christ's personal second coming, then I say the choice is easy. We dare not pass on intimacy with Christ. We dare not pass on that. And if we accept Christ, we must accept him like he is. We must accept Jesus, the cross, and all of it. That's who he is the crucified one. How else? How else could we ever have the courage to face Jesus in the kingdom, having taken a pass on his experience at the cross for eternity? How could we pass on that? Would we not be cringing around somewhere in a bush, hiding from him, not wanting to face him, ashamed to walk out in the sunshine, to meet him face to face. We dare not take a pass on the time of trouble. 
He's inviting us to grow up into the fullness of Christ and stand with Him. Oh, wrestle with God, with me, will you? Over our spiritual apathy. He's inviting us to a wrestling match. And therein, to see something about Jesus that we haven't seen before and overcome, even as he overcame. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.